A big night for Marco Rubio last night as he continued to play out his strategy of losing every primary and caucus until he becomes president of the United States. Rubio continued to masterfully gather only enough delegates to form a small cocktail party gathering in the private back room of a really excellent French restaurant. To amass any more delegates than that, said Rubio, would be vulgar and excessive, not to say outré. Some GOP party insiders are now demanding Rubio leave the race, insisting that he is only taking votes away from Ted Cruz, and therefore ensuring victory to Donald Trump, who will degrade the office of the presidency, destroy the party, and possibly finish off the American Republic. Rubio laughed off the suggestion with a careless swipe of his cigarette holder, brushing his fur boa back over his shoulder and saying, quote, a Trump victory would be a small price to pay for the sheer enjoyment provided by a sophisticated campaign of such insouciant joie de vie as mine. Rubio went on to say, quote, My campaign may not win any states or delegates or even any votes, but the stylish elegance of such noble je ne sais quoi will surely waft me into the Oval Office on the pink clouds of my own imagination. Ted Cruz responded to Rubio's statements by saying if Rubio didn't get out of the race soon, he would, quote, beat the little Cuban bastard to death with a rolled up copy of the Constitution. Told of the exchange, Donald Trump merely laughed, then sank into the earth in an explosion of fire and brimstone, his forked tail wrapping around several of his screaming supporters as he dragged them with him into eternal damnation. In the aftermath, Mr. Trump's approval ratings rose seven percentage points. Trigger warning, I'm Andrew Clavin, and this is The Andrew Clavin Show. <laughs> All right, that's, that's as close as I'm getting through that without laughing. <laughs> you're just going to have to imagine how funny it would have been if I could have said it with a straight face. All right. All right, well, at least we're having fun, right, folks? I mean, <laughs> you're, you're supporting our pleasure. There it is. All right, our, our sponsor, Reagan.com, yay, is there to protect your privacy. It's actually a brilliant idea, a way of protecting your privacy, which is under attack from big tech companies, which are scanning your emails and targeting you with advertising advertising, and government agencies are also collecting data at alarming rates. You can take back your privacy by getting an email address at Reagan.com. What you get is your name at Reagan.com, and that becomes your private email address so that you can not only proudly share President Reagan's name with every email you send, but also annoy all your liberal friends. This way you'll know your emails will never be scanned or shared with third parties. So go to ReaganPrivacy.com and secure your personal private email address, and you get two free months if you do it right now. ReaganPrivacy.com. All right. <laughs> I mean, we're working too hard now, I think, is the problem. You know, I have, to, I have to just go back briefly before we talk about the primaries and the caucuses last night. I have to go back. And I was kidding around yesterday about International Women's Day, and I got a couple of emails, more, more than like, like two or three emails, saying that in Russia... This is a big thing. So if you have, you know, a mail-order Russian wife or something or your girlfriend is Russian, it, it, they don't have Valentine's Day over there. And International Women's Day has kind of become their Valentine's Day. And so they really actually, they actually like it. You know, they get roses and all that. I was also told that it was also International Pancakes Day. And so I thought we should combine the two and just have women make us some pancakes. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> my, my wife is going to love that joke. So <laughs> I just, just thought I'd throw that in. All right, let's talk about what's happening as our country goes down the drain in the primaries. But let's, let's, as long as we're laughing, what difference does it make, right? Yeah. So, so the big surprise yesterday, I thought, was in uh, Michigan, where Bernie Sanders just barely beat out Hillary Clinton, which is 
meaningless in the long run, but it just goes to show you how bad a candidate is this woman. I mean, this guy, this guy, first of all, I, I mean, I know I keep, I keep getting these letters and tweets from young people saying, you know, you guys are so afraid of the word socialism, but in my generation, we're not afraid of this, you know. That's because in your generation, you're stupid, you know, you don't know anything. You haven't seen what this stuff does to people. You know, I keep hearing this from young people in in my generation we do it this way you know people say to me in my generation we don't believe in paying for content and you go like so your generation is stealing content from people who are me you know just just because your generation does it doesn't make it good you know my generation used to say stuff like that and we destroyed the country you know it's like don't be so thrilled with your generation youth and ignorance are just synonyms for one another you know you you don't you're not afraid of the word socialism because you haven't really seen it. It's a terrible, it's, it's like locusts. It takes a lifetime to destroy a country, but we'd all, we've already had half a lifetime of it already. So don't, don't think it's going to be good for you guys. Don't think you're going to get away and spend all the money and let the next generation take it over. So Hillary Clinton is losing to this guy, this 800-year-old socialist who looks like he parachuted out from the 1930s with this New York accent. He's saying, oh, I'm going to take all the money away from everybody and give it to nice people. And you're paying, to, you're paying people, you're not enough a living wage and all this stuff. You know, I mean, it, it really is like listening to a 1930s address on a soap box and she's losing to the guy you know and of course it doesn't matter because she's got the super delegates and the math just works out and the and black people are voting for her in large numbers which is interesting only because when white people vote for you in large numbers the press is allowed to say well it's angry white people it's ignorant white people it's resentful white people when blacks vote for you in large numbers what does that mean? You know, it's because blacks have been voting for the wrong people for th since the Civil War. They keep voting in the people who destroy their neighborhoods. Oh, yeah, Detroit like, looks good. Let's vote in some more of those guys. You know, it's, it's just not smoking yet. There's still some buildings standing, and there's not enough rubble on the streets. You know, like, give me another Democrat, you know? So, I mean, they're, they're voting for Hillary Clinton. So now people are trying to figure out she's already running against Trump because she knows she's got this. What that's going to look like is now impossible to say, but we got a little hint of it the other night. Debbie Wasserman Schultz, who is now basically a Clinton spokeswoman, is on with Megyn Kelly, and she's she's already selling the narrative that, oh my God, would you look at these vulgar people on the Republican side? Just look at them. You know, it's like, it's like ooh, how horrible, horrifying. And Megyn Kelly gave it to her right between the eyes, and watch this exchange. Who are talking about small hands and and their manhood, I mean, really, we, we need to make sure that the Republicans at their next debate put a parental advisory warning on the screen before it starts, because they certainly aren't talking about the issues that are important to the American people. You, you and they're know, being pretty vulgar in the process. You know, you know what the response to that on the other side is, which is, yes, it's gotten a little vulgar on the GOP side, but no one's facing the threat of indictment. There's no one facing the threat of indictment on our side either, Megan. They're, they're there's an open DOJ and FBI focus. investigation into Mrs. Clinton right now. Right. Let's not be melodramatic. We, we How have is that melodramatic? Those are the facts. Who, <laughs> well, predicting that there's someone who fa is facing indictment is definitely melodramatic. There was no prediction. There was, there was a statement that, someone, that there's no one on the GOP side who's under threat of indictment. That's what the Republicans say on this. No, no. Instead, you have the Republican Party, who is being led right now by their frontrunner, who has a multi-bankrupted, you know, absolutely outrageous, ridiculous position. This is a guy who has been alienating 
and being, has become a whirling dervish of extremism that the entire Republican Party that has been involved in the Republican Party for many years is absolutely flipping out over the possibility of him being the nominee because they know that he will finish off the Republican Party. Well, he might, he might, but what she's really saying, what she's really saying is they're vulgar and we're not, and what Megan is answering back, which is perfectly reasonable, is yeah, you guys are under FBI investigation. Now, the FBI can investigate an innocent person, but we know already that's not true in this case. We know already that if anybody else had done what Hillary Clinton had done, she be in prison by now. I'd, certainly, if I, had, if I did that, they'd just come and cart me away. But this is classic. It's a classic Democrat-Republican divide, because if you go on and look at the news, the mainstream media news, which is all Democrats, Scott Pelley and George Stephanopoulos and all these guys, just Democrat hacks selling a Democrat story, but they're classy guys. You know, they learn how to be presentable to the rest of the country. Brian Williams, classy guy. There's nothing, you know, he's very presentable. You could bring him home to mom and he would lie to your mom and then steal the money in her cookie jar. You know, I mean, he, these guys have the class, but they're empty shells because they're completely ideological and dishonest. And you get a Brian Williams who's got class and all this stuff. And then you get the guys on our side, guys like Ted Cruz, who haven't mastered that style, who haven't mastered the kind of, you know, what it's like to be in a, in a boardroom in, uh, in New York when you're talking to the rest of the media. And they're honest men, you know, and that's always been the difference. So they're saying, yeah, Donald Trump, you know, I'm obviously not a big Donald Trump fan, and he has brought the entire debate down to a level that even I'm uncomfortable with, and, you know, I live in the gutter. But, you know, he has done that. But Hillary Clinton is just as bad. And I'm talking to my Democrat friends, and they're saying, how could you even consider voting for Donald Trump? And I'm saying, you know, to me, it's it's Godzilla versus Rodin. You know, it's these two monsters battling it out with each other, if that's the way it ends up. And, you know, you got a taste you saw, though. You saw a little bit of of Hillary's elegance. A couple of days ago, Brett Baer had her on, and I admired her, frankly, for going on the Brett Baer show, for going on Fox, and facing his questioning, because Baer is the best reporter on television, and he really will hammer you. And he doesn't, you know, Megyn Kelly does question people in a tough way, but a lot of it is show. I mean, Baer just hits you with the questions and lets you answer, which is the worst thing you can do to some people. So, I thought Hillary handled it very well. She stood up to him. But, and take a listen to the, this exchange. You said at a March press conference in 2015, quote, I did not email any classified material to anyone on my email. There is no classified material. So can we say definitively that that statement's not accurate? No, you can't. Here's what happens. The State Department has a process for determining what is or isn't classified. If they determine it is, they mark it as classified. Well, who decides? The what State Department decides. But what about you when you're typing an email? No, the State, the State Department decides what is, and let, let me go a step further here. I will reiterate, because it's a fact, nothing I sent or received was marked classified. Now, what happens when you ask or when you are asked to make information public is that it's reviewed and different agencies come in with their opinions. As you know, just recently, Colin Powell's emails uh, were retroactively classified from more than 10 years ago. Right. As he said, that was an absurdity. I could not agree more. So your contention now is the 2,101 emails contained information that should 
be classified at any time. This should be now or then. You're just saying it's not, it, was, it shouldn't have been classified. Well, what I'm saying is it wasn't at the time. Okay, so the thing is, Hillary has got her story straight now. Before, it was that there were no classified emails. You know, now, and, and then it was like there was nothing wrong in what I was doing. I, had to, I didn't want my two Blackberries or whatever she was using. She had this, uh, various different stories. She's now winnowed this story down to a believable tale in light of what the public knows. Her story now is, yes, I made a mistake. It was careless of me, but I didn't do anything really wrong. And none of these emails were classified at the time, which, of course... You know, does that make sense? No, it doesn't, because if you know that the emails could be classified later, if that if that very thing that she just described, if that process is the process, then why would you send them on an easily hackable private email? I mean, the only reason she did this was to hide what she was doing. The only reason she did it is because she's an entitled queen of the May who thinks she can get away with anything. That's why she did it. But... But she stood up to Brett Baer, and she told her lie, and she told her kind of distorted story, and she's got it down now. Now, is that going to stand up to Donald Trump, who just says, you know, ah, you know, ah, you liar, you liar, you're the lioness, you're the lioness liar who ever lied to lie, you know? I mean, is, is that going to stand up? I, who knows? Who knows whether it is? I mean, everything that Trump has done has defied expectations. And so, you know, I'm sure they, I'm sure they know this. I'm sure they're a little nervous about this. There is no way, I, you know, I'm hoping Cruz will come back. I'm hoping Cruz can take the nomination. But I think that the Democrats would probably be more comfortable running against Cruz than they would against Trump. He is such a wild card. Wild card is not the right metaphor. Loose cannon is more, uh, you know, the metaphor. And he could, uh, loose cannon could just blow Hillary Clinton into the middle of next week. So we don't know what's going to happen. And she doesn't know what's going to happen. But that's a little preview. What you were seeing there is a preview of that race, if that's the race that comes to be. On the Republican side, for those of us who think that Donald Trump is kind of a disaster, it was a bad night. I mean, I think it was one of the more depressing nights of this campaign because on Saturday we started to think, well, maybe we've hit peak Trump. You know, maybe the the Trumpian uh, bandwagon, gee, somebody's stomping on it. Sounds, sounds like maybe maybe that is Donald Trump, but, you know, Godzilla coming to get us. But maybe we, we thought on Saturday maybe the Trumpian uh, juggernaut had hit a snag and Ted Cruz was coming back, but that just can't happen as long as Rubio and Kasich remain in the race. And I don't know, Kasich has some plan in his mind that either he's going to be the VP for Trump or he's going to win Ohio and that is going to lead to a brokered convention and somehow the establishment is going to replace Trump with him, which just isn't going to happen. I mean, that's just not going to happen. So maybe he's just playing for the VP spot. At this point, whatever he's doing, it's incredibly selfish. He should let the two front runners ha hack it out, but he's just not going to move until Ohio. What Rubio is thinking, Rubio was smushed last night. I, You know, he was destroyed and he got nothing. And now he's going to go into Florida and get humiliated because I don't think he can win with what's going on now. Let us pause for a moment for this commercial break, a little little music, and then we should have some music. We should have some Reagan.com music, a little danger music to say your privacy is under attack, and then a beautiful flowing, you know, symphony to tell you we have the answer. Your privacy is under attack, big tech companies, danger music still, big tech companies are scanning your emails and targeting you with unwanted advertising, which is true and which I hate, and government agencies are collecting data at alarming rates, also true, also hate. 
But we have the answer. Now we change from the danger music to the flowing symphonic, you know, thing, because you can take back your privacy by getting an email address at Reagan.com. What you get is your name at Reagan.com. So you can proudly share President Reagan's name on every one of your emails, which would drive half the people I send emails to crazy, which would be worth it just for that alone. But the important thing is they will not share or scan your emails for any third party. So no targeted advertising, no government coming and taking away your socks or whatever the government is planning to do with all that information they're scanning. You can go to Reaganprivacy.com, Reaganprivacy.com, and get a secure personal private email address. And if you go there right now, you will get two free bonus months, ReaganPrivacy.com. Okay, so back to the Republican side. So the Republican side was hilarious. I mean, Trump, you know, we thought that maybe the Trump juggernaut had stumbled, that maybe we'd hit peak Trump, but really, you know, he's still kind of in there around 36%. There's still uh, half the party that does not want him. The establishment doesn't want him. A lot of conservatives like me, we don't want him because of his principles, but he's still, you know, winning. And if he gets to the convention, even with less than the requisite number, if he gets there with a high number of delegates, very hard to take it away from the guy. Very hard to say, yeah, but we want, you know, Rubio, Mitt Romney, John Case. I don't think that's going to happen. If it does, it'll be worse for the party than almost anything that Trump can do. So then Trump gets up and he starts out and he gives this speech. And it, it was, I thought it was hilarious. I mean, it, it's an hour long speech and they didn't even cut away from it to <laughs> Like Clinton, they love this guy. The media can't, you know, he's he's such good copy. They can't get take their eyes off him. It's like a train wreck. He starts off very very rational speech. He sounded almost presidential. You know, he's saying like, well, you know, I'm bringing people into the party. I'm bringing Democrats in. It's a new party. I'm changing things. This is great. If you'll only accept me and unify behind me, I will get, bring you the presidency as a prize. And then then he just gets off answering all the attacks about him being a bad businessman. And this is because. Like every bully on earth, he is afraid of the very techniques he uses on other people. Every bully on earth, every guy, every big kid who pushes a little kid around is secretly afraid of being pushed around himself. So all these personal attacks that he unleashes are the things that he's most sensitive about. So he starts in about, you know, oh my, my goodness, you know, Trump University, Trump stakes, my Trump stakes are great and my business has no debt. And he then he goes on, just let's, let's just hear a little bit of the rambling routine. This is, I think, about Trump University. We have a, a lawsuit where they're trying to get, you know, we have one of these class action lawyers guys, and, and it's ridiculous, but we'll win that lawsuit. And I'm, I'm some, I just want to explain, I and the United States should be this. I don't settle lawsuits, very rare, because once you settle lawsuits, everybody sues you. Very simple. It's like business. I teach it. When you settle lawsuits, it's easier to settle. Sometimes it's cheaper to settle. But once you settle, I had a friend who taught me a long time ago. He was sued very rarely, and everybody else in the same business was sued all the time. He said, Donald, I never settle. The lawyers learn you don't settle, they don't sue. So I don't settle lawsuits. When I watch these banks, they're settling lawsuits all the time. They get paid $40 million a year, a banker. And then he say, settles lawsuits with governments and other people, giving billions and billions of dollars. I don't do it. So when I, when I saw the different things, uh, and by the way, the winery, you see the wine, because he mentioned Trump Vodka. It's the largest winery on the East Coast. I own it 100%, no mortgage, no debt. You can all check. You have to go check the records, folks. In fact, the press, I'm asking you, please check, because you can see if there's any debt. 
So this goes on for an hour. And by the way, the stakes he brings out, the Trump stakes, aren't Trump stakes. They come from someplace else. And he, and people are applauding that he's got no debt. You know, I got no debt at my hotel. Hey, hooray, Donald Trump, he has no debt. I mean, it was just, so, I, you know, I can't match the commentary provided by Charles Krauthammer yesterday. This is, this is Krauthammer responding to this. I don't think I've ever heard such a stream of disconnected ideas since I quit psychiatry 30 years ago. Uh, that was quite a performance, and it was very weird. I heard Rollins and Trippy giving advice. You got to tighten it up. You got to shorten it up. You have to have a point. The fact is, and this is the stunning thing about this election, without the tightening up, without the experts, without the prompter, he is where he is. There is simply something. That was a performance. That was live television. That was reality television and that nobody can do and that has its appeal now i think people actually separate the the, the performance part what he did tonight from what he says he's going to do as president and he's pulled it off now in the end i think that's going to be really dangerous one of the things about charles krauthammer one of the smartest guys in the country one of the smartest commentators especially on foreign policy and i just like him because he has the name of a norse god you know krauthammer sounds like the hammer of the krauts you know it's like i am it's like thor i am thor the hammer of the krauts but his predictions about politics are almost always wrong about local politics i remember sitting during the obama clinton fight remember during the primaries they're fighting it out and he said, and I'm sure, I, I couldn't find this you know, cut, but I'm sure it exists. Krauthammer said there is no way during a war with Islam, essentially, that we are going to elect a man named Barack Hussein Obama. And I remember sitting on my sofa, you know, with my glass of wine, thinking, Charlie boy, you don't know. I could see Obama was going straight to the White House. I mean, I already knew that this was a done deal. And I could just see the passion that, that people were following with. When Krauthammer says that people are going to separate the appearance of what Trump is doing from the technique, I think he's making a classic pundit error, because that's what he's going to do. He's going to do that, but I'm not sure the rest of us are going to do that. I'm not sure his voters are going to do it. But I really like his wry, detached attitude, because what he is essentially recognizing, and to his credit, he's recognizing that this election has gone way past the powers of punditry. I mean, everything that people have said, including me, has been wrong. You know, we all thought Trump would implode. I never thought I never thought that Trump would implode because of anything he said. I thought he would implode as people started to realize who he was. But I don't think that's happening. And it looks very unlikely that it's going to happen. There's still, I mean, still Cruz has a chance. There's still a chance that people are just going to say, no, I get it. Cruz is the guy. But why isn't that going to happen? And why, <clears throat> why did everybody get it wrong? And I think the reason everybody got it wrong is the reason... The usual reason that people get things wrong is because they were lying to themselves. I mean, this is what people do. This is what we all do from the minute we wake up to the minute we go to bed. We lie to ourselves. And then when things don't turn out the way we thought, we thought, why, why wasn't that? You know, why did, why did, is it so strange? Why is it all so unexpected? And it's unexpected because you were telling yourself lies. And if you get smart over time, you stop telling yourself so many lies. And one of the ways you can tell that you've stopped lying to yourself so much is you, be, you become better at predicting things. So. First of all, the Democrats have been lying to themselves, and they're lying to themselves now about Donald Trump. Jason Riley, uh, who is with the Manhattan Institute, where I do some work for City Journal, he wrote a good piece today in the Wall Street Journal. He says, the conventional wisdom on the left 
he says that the Democrats are peddling a lie about Donald Trump. And I think they're peddling this lie, both to the public through the New York Times and other, you know, left-wing mouthpieces. But they're also peddling it to themselves. He says, the conventional wisdom on the left is that the GOP brought the Trump phenomenon on itself. For years, insists the New York Times, Republican leaders have embraced and exploited the darkest elements of the party's base. This is what the Times is saying. The Washington Post adds that the party has subtly and not so subtly played on racial resentment. Other liberal pundits have cited the Tea Party movement as evidence of supposedly ascendant GOP white nationalism. Republican leaders, in other words, have greased the skids for this New York vulgarian and now want to feign shock at his success. The Tea Party charge might be the most absurd, says Riley, and not just because the movement abetted the election of racial and ethnic minorities, such as Tim Scott, Nikki Haley, and Marco Rubio. Liberals who are eager to ascribe racial motivations to the Tea Party are ignoring activists' pre-Obama anger at George W. Bush's spending policies. In truth, the GOP leadership has made concerted efforts in recent years to expand the party's appeal to non-whites. And this is what, what Riley is essentially saying, is the, the party, after Mitt Romney ran and lost, the party put out a, a white paper, what do we have to do? And they said, we have to appeal to new demographic communities, Hispanic, Asian, Pacific Islanders, African Americans, Indian Americans, Native Americans, women, and youth. They were basically, I mean, someone like me hates this kind of identity, politic, uh, identity politics, but this is what the GOP establishment was saying, and this is what Donald Trump isn't doing. So to blame the GOP establishment is ridiculous. But, but the GOP has also been kidding itself. And here's an article from uh, Rod Dreher in The American Conservative who talks about what the GOP told itself that wasn't true. He says, at least since the days of Reagan, movement conservatives have thought of themselves as outsiders, as men and women of the people, the real Americans. Even after they had spent years in Washington, they thought of themselves as in Washington, but not of Washington. They believed themselves to be representatives and advocates of the patriotic heartland. Unlike liberal coastal elites, they loved America, were proud of America, and defended her and her interests. Elites may try to foist their agendas on we the people, but in the minds of Republican elites, it was they who stood in the breach fighting those elites. When National Review, in a Clinton-era cover story, crowned Rush Limbaugh leader of the opposition, they were not wrong. This is what the Republican Party had become. Now it turns out that the people prefer Trump and Cruz, whom the establishment hate. It turns out that the people were actually absorbing all that GOP anti-government, anti-elite rhetoric these past 35 years and have now turned it on the Washington class that used that rhetoric so effectively to mobilize the people against liberals. This is such a shock to the establishment Republican class because they really did believe their own story. The GOP thought that they were representing the people, that they were the outsiders, that they were the guardians of conservatives, and the people were saying, not so much, not so much, you know. And the people, you know, see, the people know something that the pundits don't know. The people know that they are going to make their decisions on a kind of, on the way we all make our decisions about each other. This is why, you see, people think demography is fate, they think numbers are fate, they think delegate counts are fate, and all those things play a role. But 
Ultimately, what plays a role is individuals. Nobody saw Trump coming because Trump remains an individual. He has not been homogenized by the political system yet, and he is still... Look, I think he's a horrifying individual. I think he's dishonest. I don't think he is what he says he is. I don't think he'll say what he says he'll do. But people look at him and they see what they want to see, and they see an honest man the same way. Look, serial killers and con men make a living because we judge people on the instant. We judge people in the first 30 seconds that we see them. And what people see when they see Donald Trump is a business, an effective businessman and a man who speaks the truth. And, you know, last night I was listening. I was finished. I just finished recording the audio book of my memoir, The, the uh, Great Good Thing, which I hope you'll run out and pre-order. The Great Good Thing, it comes out in September. And I'm driving home and I'm listening to Hugh Hewitt and he's just letting people call in for 30 seconds and say who they're voting for and why. And the Trump supporters were all, basically each one of them saw somebody different, but they were reacting to a person, an actual complete human being. And these guys get so programmed, the pundits and the political class get so programmed that they forget that individuals make history. Tolstoy was wrong about this. Individuals make history. And Trump is making history now. Not for the best, I think, but there it is. Okay, Stuff I Like. You know, I started Stuff I Like for a very specific reason, and the reason is this. I've read every book ever written, okay? And I've seen virtually every movie. In fact, if you get my memoir, The, the Great Good Thing, you will see uh, why I've read every book I've ever written. It's actually part of the story of my life. And I thought I, would, I will suggest things, not the things that maybe I think are the greatest things, because I figure if you haven't seen Hamlet, if you haven't read Dickens, you're probably not going to do it. But things that I've read that I think people will enjoy and I try to spread them. The one thing I wanted not to do is plug my friend's stuff because all my friends are making movies and writing books and all that stuff and I don't want to spend the time. I'm making an exception in this case because my friend Cyrus Cyrus Nawasta, who is my friend but I can't pronounce his name, who I hope will come on the show. He says he'll come on the show next week. Uh, he has a movie opening this weekend. It's called The Young Messiah, and it's based on the Anne Rice novel, uh, Christ the Lord, out of Egypt. And you'll remember Anne Rice converted, and then she said she was leaving the church because they weren't nice to gays. And every time she opens her mouth, she just sinks her ship a little deeper. However, Cyrus is not Anne, and he and his wife Betsy have written a really, really interesting movie about the, what are usually called the lost years of Jesus as a little boy. Let's play just a little bit of this trailer. It'll give you the sense of what it's about. Listen well, because I'm only going to tell the story once. One morning, my room filled with light, and it spoke to me. It said that from my room would come a son. You, named Jesus. I was just 14 when you were born. A girl, really. Why did God choose me? What if I'm not strong enough? We must trust God every day. What do we tell our little boy? How do we explain God to his own son? That's the theme of the story. How do, how do you break it to your son that he is really the son of God? And the reason it's so, it's so lovely, and a lot of people, there are people who are upset about it already because it's not biblical. It's, he's, Dan Rice was imagining stuff and using some of the, uh, you know, uh, the Gospels that aren't in the Gospels. Um, what do they call it? The, uh, well, the uncertain Gospels, you know, the things that weren't included and are probably just legends. 
but she used some of that material. But she, but the film asks this question, and the question sort of reflects a very deep theological point that Christians believe that God became man. How can mere man contain God? And that's why the issue of how you tell your child who he is, how you deal with a child, and yet deal with God at the same time, becomes a kind of profound question. It's very beautiful. Sean Bean is in it and gives a great performance as the centurion sent to hunt this child down. Uh, it's a really, I think it's a really lovely film, and I think people will like it. Cyrus made The Stoning of Soraya M., which was really powerful. He made The Path to 9-11, which has virtually been banned by Disney, the a ABC. They won't put it out on DVD because it shows that Clinton contributed to 9-11 by not taking out um, bin Laden. So he's been a controversial, Cyrus is not afraid of controversy, he's not afraid of controversy in this case, but it is a film that I don't think will offend Christians at all, and I think it's really beautiful and raises some interesting points. So, that's it. We'll be back tomorrow. Will we? Yes, tomorrow we have we have our second interview tomorrow. Hooray, it's really interesting. A book I'm just finishing, uh, and we'll talk about it tomorrow. I think it will put a lot of the history that we are now witnessing into perspective. I'm Andrew Claven. This is the Andrew Claven Show. Come back tomorrow. It's going to be a good show. Thank <laughs> you.